Good morning, friends. It's good to see you again today. This morning you've already heard the word truth used a few times, and that's not by mistake. Uh, we are trying to make sure that the theme of the day revolves around the theme of the text, and of course, that is truth that we're looking at today, and that comes from what you just heard read from the letter of Second John. In a world of lies, lies about what is fulfilling, lies about what's important, lies about God, lies about the opposite sex and gender issues, lies about government, about everything imaginable, lies, 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 we need the truth, don't we? We desperately need the truth. If the human race ever needed a clear truth, I think it's now, uh, in our day. We have people arguing um, about the most absurd things um, in our day, um, including uh, whether or not there are more than two genders and whether or not you can identify as any or multiple ones at the same time. Or if you'd like, you could also identify as a dog or a cat or a cockroach, if you wish. Um, but there's only one truth, right? There's, there's not multiple truths, there's one. And there really is only one source of truth. And so if a proposition is opposed to that truth, it's false. It's not a version of the truth, it's, it's false if it's opposed to the revealed truth of God's word. To some, it, it may sound arrogant to claim to have a corner on the truth, but that is exactly what we are doing. We're claiming to have a corner on the truth. And, and our claim as Christians to have a corner on the truth isn't something that we came up with to protect our ideas, our ideas about God or about everything else that matters. No, our claim to have an exclusive corner on the truth has been given to us by God himself in his word. Jesus said about God's word in John 17, verse 17, your word is truth. And so what we hold in our hands is the truth. If this says that God made male and female, then that is the total number of genders because God's word reveals that. God, the author of truth, has established what is true. It's not something that we make up or discover. No, it has been delivered to us in the scriptures throughout all that we have in our hands by inspired writers. Last week, we began to look at this amazing little letter, 2 John, and discovered that the theme of this short first century letter is, in fact, truth. The truth was under attack in the first century, as you know, and has been under attack since the Garden of Eden, actually, hasn't it? You remember that, that Satan deceived Eve with lies, right? He, she, he said to her, you can be like God. Sounds like some contemporary religions we know of, right? The apostle is concerned here, the apostle John, that is, is concerned that his readers know the importance of possessing the truth. And so this is what I'm going to address today. The possession of truth. Do you have the possession of truth? I don't mean just in written form in your hands. I mean in your heart, in your mind. Do you possess the truth? Those that have the truth receive the benefits of the truth. And the first benefit that we looked at last week, and you'll see this in your notes, is that truth unites us. Truth unites us. 
Our unity as Christians is based on the truth of sound doctrine. It's not like half of us believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God, and the other half of us to believe, no, that he's God. No. We are united by the truth that God became man in order to live the perfect life required by God and then die for us who haven't been able to do that. This, along with the other biblical divine truths, are what bind us together in unity. Right? That's why we gather. So the next benefit, the first benefit is that it unites us. The second benefit of truth is that it abides in us. You'll notice um, in verse 2, the truth abides in us who have embraced it, who have embraced Jesus, the God of truth. When the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, he deposits the truth in you. So, truth abiding in us allows us to recognize truth and error when we see it. That is why at some point in your life, the gospel made sense to you and you embraced it. Why? Because God implanted truth in your heart, and when you saw the gospel, you received it with joy. You recognized the truth for what it was. It abides in us. Thirdly, we see in verse 3 that the benefit of truth is that it blesses us. Look at verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us. And then he says, from the Father and the Son, in truth. And so a benefit of the truth is the blessings that come with it. And are there any more precious blessings to us, Christian friend, than the three that are listed by John? Grace, mercy, and peace. Can you think of a more wonderful set of blessings in our lives? The grace of God the mercy of God towards us, peace with God, our creator. No, there's nothing greater. These things are, in fact, what bless us. The fourth benefit of the truth that we looked at last week that the Apostle John identifies is seen in verse 4, which tells us that the truth guides those who possess it. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. That means being guided by the truth, applying the truth to daily life. So possessing truth guides our thinking, it guides our relationships, it guides our priorities. If you have the truth, it affects your life. When you actually fully understand truth, it cannot stay in the realm of theory. A full knowledge of truth works its way into the practical application of that truth in every area of your life. This is what Paul wrote to Philemon, if you remember, that we studied a few weeks back. In Philemon 6, Paul said that living out the Christian life is a result of a full knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. And what are the good things we have in Christ? Truth. What's a full knowledge of the truth? It's applying the truth. It's, uh, remember that gnosis is the word for knowledge. He said epignosis, which means full knowledge. Full knowledge is different than knowledge, like application is different to truth. You don't really fully understand truth until you apply it in your life. You can say you believe in the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of sovereignty, but if you go through life worrying about tomorrow, you don't believe in sovereignty. Does that make sense? So a full knowledge of the truth is the application of the truth, which is what the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John have said. So if you, if you were here on that Sunday that I preached 
on Philemon, you, you remember, hopefully, that I emphasize that word, full knowledge. It's two words in English, one word in the original language. But it is epigenosis, the application of knowledge, the application of truth. So it gets out of our heads, that is, knowledge gets out of our heads, out of theory, and into our daily lives by way of application. If you aren't practicing some aspect of the Christian life, let me name a few, serving, giving, loving, praying, if you're not practicing those things, it's because you don't fully understand that truth. You got, you got head knowledge, but you haven't applied it. Truth hasn't moved from theory to practice. So now as we look at the second half of this short but very useful letter, I want you to notice that if we have these benefits, truth uniting us, abiding in us, blessing us, and guiding us, the following will be true. All right? The following. Or we call this the results of truth. The first is this. Truth will result in sacrificial love. Truth will result in sacrificial love. Truth, a, a truth-saturated life will result in sacrificial love. Look at verses 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. And so what I want you to see here is that if we experience all the benefits of truth, then love will be the outcome. You say you've embraced Christ. You say you have knowledge. You say you understand truth. Is it evident? It doesn't matter what you say you know. What matters is how you live is what John is saying. This is what he is saying in these two important verses. If you've embraced the truth of Jesus and committed your life to following him, the primary result will be a growing love for everyone else who has embraced him. Can you see that evidence in your life? A growing love for the body of Christ, for your fellow Christian? Jesus has commanded that we love one another and remember the command specifically. He said, love one another just as I have loved you. That means apply it. <laughs> Not just know that you're supposed to love others, apply the truth and do it, is what he's saying. He, he's John, in John 13, 34, Jesus said this. Paul repeated this in Ephesians 5, 25. So just as, love one another just as I have loved you, and Paul said this to husbands, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. This is what Jesus wants. A loving Savior desires loving followers. It's not a, a glory to Christ if his followers aren't following. <laughs> and, and John says it's not a new command. This is not something you haven't heard before, dear lady. Here in verse 5 and 6. So if it wasn't a new command, when was the command given? Well, I refer to it here in John 13 by Jesus the night he was betrayed. Interestingly, in that same chapter, John 13 in verse 1, John described what sacrificial love looks like, if you want to know. 
There it says in verse 1 that he loved them, Jesus loved them to the end. What that means is that Jesus loved them fully, completely, perfectly, exhaustively. He loved them what we would call sacrificially. When, when John wrote that this command wasn't a new command, but they had had it from the beginning, I think it's important for you to know what the beginning he was referring to. Because the Bible refers to uh, two or three, four uh, different beginnings. One of the beginnings, of course, is the beginning of the world. Another beginning that the Bible speaks of is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Another beginning that the Bible speaks of is the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. And that's the one John was speaking of. From the beginning of your relationship, you've known that we are to love one another. In other words, Christian friend, listen to me, that is the primary teaching for new Christians. You are now to love one another, which is why Jesus emphasized it, why Paul emphasized it, why John is emphasizing it here in this letter and in the, the, his first letter, 1 John. And I think this is really important. Um, and may, maybe I should ask you, is this what you learned early on in your Christian experience? That you are now expected, not just expected, commanded by Jesus himself to love others in your life, to primarily other Christians, and not just love them intellectually, but actually apply that love sacrificially, just as Christ loved us. That's what he wants from us. If you want to get technical about this, and I know some of you do, I want you to follow me into the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, we read of the command to Israel to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Remember that? Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Um, Jesus repeated this command in Matthew 22, so it applies to us today. It wasn't just Israel who's supposed to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we, as Christians, are supposed to do the same. And, and so part of being a follower of Jesus is to love God, whole, love God wholeheartedly. But it also says in Leviticus 19, verse 18, that we are to love others just as we love ourselves. So we're commanded to love God wholeheartedly, and we're commanded to sacrificially love others in the Old Testament. Yes, love God and love people. Now, think for a moment about one of the central elements of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, right? We know of the Ten Commandments. We may even be able to repeat them. But if, if you remember, the Ten Commandments is divided into two sections. The first section has to do with loving God, and the second section has to do with loving mankind or loving each other. So when Paul said in Romans 13, 8, that love fulfills the whole law, that's what he meant. When you love God wholeheartedly and you love your brother wholeheartedly, you fulfill the Ten Commandments, the first section and the second section. If you love God, you won't have other gods before you, right? Or take his name in vain or ignore him throughout the week. Thus fulfilling the first half of the Ten Commandments. And then on the other hand, if you love others, you won't lie to them, steal from them, murder them, covet what they have. No, you will actually love them and you won't do those things. So that is a fulfillment of the whole law when you love God and love others. The command to love is not new. So what John is saying is true. <laughs> it's been around forever. 
It's, it's been part of God's revelation to mankind dating back thousands of years when the first inspired script was written by Moses, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And so what, we, what I'm saying to you is that this command to love God and love people finds its origin in the character of God. It's who God is. God is love, I think John said in 1 John. And this loving character, listen closely, this loving character of part of what is granted to each and every authentic believer at the point of regeneration. And you'll hear in a second why this is so important, but let me tell you where I get that information. 2 Peter 1.3, we read that all believers are partakers in the divine nature. We are partakers in the divine nature. At the point of regeneration, the Holy Spirit grants us a part of the divine nature, so we partake in that nature. He gives you this new spiritual life, and part of the new spiritual life has a loving character, the same kind of character that God himself possesses. It's the divine nature. Paul calls this the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But I want you, if you don't mind, I know this is on the overhead, but if you have a Bible with you, I hope you do, I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. This was the verses of meditation earlier today. Look at these two verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay, they have been born of God. And everyone who loves God the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. Part of becoming a Christian means you automatically begin to love other people. Now, I'm going to give you a sidelight that has little to do with what I'm speaking on this morning, but I love sidelights. <clears throat> Look at the first sentence in John, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. Has been is past tense. <laughs> you understand? Becoming a Christian isn't because you believe Becoming a Christian is because you've been born of God. You got it? So, you think, sitting here, ah, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I guess I'm a Christian. Well, yeah, but why did you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Because you've been born of God before you believe. That's why you believe. You believe because the Holy Spirit gave you life. This is what Ephesians 2 says, right? The Holy Spirit ignited this divine life in you that brought you from death to life. I'm done with sidelights. Back to the text. We have here evidence in 1 John 5, 1 and 2 that being born of God, part of being born of God is that you've been given this new life that is a divine life. You're a partaker in a divine nature, which in its character is loving. So you can't, here's my point. 
You can't say, oh, you can say what you want, but it's not true. You can't say you're a Christian if you don't love other believers. And you don't love other believers if you just say it. So uh, it's so important to understand that the kind of love that Jesus and John describe isn't based on emotional attachment or a commonality or an affinity. It's based on obedience. I hope you're following me here. This is critical. The kind of love that Jesus and John are describing isn't based on something emotional you feel for someone. It's based on obeying the command you've been given by Christ himself. You may ask, well, if I don't feel anything for the person I'm loving, is it really love? If I don't have some warm, fuzzy boiling up in me, is it really love? When I do or say something for you, to you. The answer is, Jesus said it was. <laughs> you don't have to have warm fuzzies to love people. You have to be obedient to love people. So how is this love connected to the truth or the theme of the book or the letter of 2 John? Let's turn back there if you're still in 1 John. How does this love connect to the truth? Well, the truth is of God. Do we agree on that? The truth is of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus, the God of heaven, who came to this earth to live and die for us, called himself the truth. I am the truth. Then he said, if you'll love me, you'll obey me. He commanded us to love one another, so the truth is directly connected to love. Jesus, the God of heaven, commands love, so love is connected to the truth. Jesus showed his love for the Father by being obedient to him. We demonstrate our love for Jesus by being obedient to him. And when he says, love one another just as I have loved you, we do it if we're saved. Because we have been given a divine nature. That wants to do this. It's not like something you have to beat yourself into submission to love your neighbor. You, you desire it because it's part of the nature that God's given you. This is why it is so concerning to me when I come across someone who claims to know God but has little interest in God's people. They say that they love Jesus, but you can't see any evidence of them loving Jesus' followers. And we all have that distant uncle someplace that says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they don't go to church. It's like, really? Is there no church in, within a day's walk from your house? I mean, the, the Christians in Africa that, that don't have vehicles walk for a day to get to church. There's one two miles from your house and you don't go to church? Explain that to me, Christian. This is what the Apostle John is addressing here in 2 John, verses 5 and 6. This is the same thing John addressed in John 13. It's the same thing that the entire book of 1 John is written about. 
This is why John is called the apostle of love. It's of primary importance to him. It's evidence of true belief. Christian love moves beyond feelings and, and meets needs. For example, just as, remember those important words, Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary met our greatest need, paying the penalty for our sin. So what do those around you and me need? Well, I think there's two different levels that we can talk about. One level is they may need help mowing their lawn and babysitting. That's great. That's wonderful. You ought to do those things. But level two would be supporting them through their struggle with sin by holding them accountable, confronting, encouraging, encouraging them to keep fighting, walking with them. And so level two love also includes evangelism of the lost. There, there's nothing more loving that you can do for an unsaved person than to share Jesus with them. How can we say, Christians, that we love our neighbors, our unsaved neighbors, and at the same breath say we believe in hell and then not share with them how to avoid hell. If we're going to love saved people, that is people who are in the family of God, who are united to us in truth, the most loving thing we can do for one another goes beyond mowing lawn and babysitting. All those, those are wonderful things, don't get me wrong. But a level two type of love is to sacrificially befriend them. Even when they aren't friendly. Love them when they're unlovely. Walk with them to the celestial city, as John Bunyan wrote about in Pilgrim's Progress. His friends walked with him through thick and thin, that is Christian in that book, Pilgrim's Progress. So this means that we have our friendships move in the, in the church, those of us who embrace the truth, we have our friendships move beyond superficial things that we naturally have in common, which is fine. We can be friends because we like the Seahawks, but it has to go beyond that if we're saved, right? And we need to move from those superficial things that are, come natural to us and move into a spiritually rich friendship walking with one another to the celestial city, helping our brothers and sisters become like Jesus. How are we going to do this? We, we have such compartmentalized, such compartmentalized lives and such different uh, experiences in life. And so we could, in fact, live out our lives, call ourselves Christians, attend church on Sunday, and never interact with each other. That's not okay. And so what do we do about it? Because of our culture, as disintegrated as it is, our elders in this church have thought that it would be a good idea to gather you in places called small groups so that you can actually do what I'm preaching. Something you can't do in this room. I mean, you're all looking one direction now. And when you leave, you look towards your car and you walk past people in the lobby without even glancing at them. So we, we have this idea, it's called small groups where you gather weekly and you share life. You encourage one another. You develop spiritual friendships. You walk with Christ and your brother. So I want you to notice at the end of the letter that John says that he could write more but desires to speak face to face. Do you see this? 
Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy will be complete. Friends, we can live our lives separate from one another and have a, a, a superficial concept of the body of Christ, or we can actually meet face to face and have our joy be complete. I could go into a rant about the woes of texting an email right now, but I'm going to avoid that and just tell you we ought to be face to face. So, you might say, well, I don't attend small group because I'm too busy. I don't get anything out of it. Then add your own excuse. I don't have to go into all the reasons that this is a revealing statement. I'm too busy. Really? <laughs> Let me say this. Maybe your attendance at small group isn't about you. You ever thought of that? If we're supposed to be loving one another, you know, you don't start by loving me, loving you. I'm, I'm coming to group to love you. I'm not going to group so that I can love myself. My, my attendance is for your benefit and yours for mine. Have you missed that basic point <laughs> of church and small group and the Christian life? Friends, It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. And then, of course, I, I would refer you back to my earlier comments on full knowledge, right? Applied truth. Truth in the brain isn't where truth ends. It ends on the street. It's complete there. So if you don't understand the importance of loving other believers, then you may, not, you may have knowledge, but it's not full knowledge. Possessing truth results in sacrificial love. Do you see this in your life? I hope so. And then finally, I want you to see in verses 7 through 11 that truth will result in fidelity to the truth. Truth will result in fidelity to the truth. To the truth. Look at verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such, as, such a one as the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God, and whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, Christians are obligated, commanded to be hospitable, right? This is what we read in the New Testament in numerous places. We are to embrace those that we don't know in God's family as if they were long-lost friends, right? So we can actually stop and say hello to someone we don't know in the lobby before we get into our car and go home. Why? Because we're commanded to be hospitable towards one another, accept one another, love one another. We, we are to receive each other um, at every opportunity. In fact... We, we get the sense from reading these scriptures on the commands of 
hospitality that we're supposed to look for opportunities to do so. We're supposed to be inviting each other into each other's homes. We're supposed to be taking each other out for lunch or coffee. We're supposed to be stopping and saying hi when we see each other, including Sunday morning. In the first century, this was particularly important because there were no ways to safely travel from one place to the next. Um, and so hospitality towards other believers was critical. There was no Hampton Inn chain, you know, hotel chain, no such thing as Airbnb. So if you didn't know any other Christians, you would take your chances and spend the night in the town square, which was never safe. Any inn that was available, and there were inns, right? Mary and Joseph went to an inn, but it was full, so they stayed in the, in the barn to have Jesus. So there were inns, but most inns, if not all inns in the first century, would have been notoriously shady and or dangerous. So hospitality was a, a, a critical, practical command in the first century. But because of this, um, false teachers who had snuck into the church would take advantage of this command and ask people in local churches to house them while they were in town. And in the name of hospitality, some believers would invite these false teachers into their homes and unknowingly be a participant in promoting their false doctrine just by supporting them, feeding them, giving them room to sleep in. And this is what John is writing about in verses 10 and 11. He's saying, be careful, dear lady, don't do this. You're aiding and abetting the enemy. So John was warning his readers against supporting anyone who was involved in promoting false doctrine. If you possess the truth because the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart and brought you into the family of God, you cannot, listen, cannot be a participant in the ministries of anyone, no matter how popular, who promotes false doctrine. It's important, Christian friend, to do so is to sin. You know, but, you know, she says such wonderful things in wonderful ways in this, in this book about how to be a woman in the world. It's so wonderful. Well, does she align with the teachings of Jesus Christ? If so, fine. If not, don't buy her books. Don't read her podcast or listen to her podcast, read her blog. You can tell how much I do those things. <laughs> I read podcasts and listen to blogs. So <laughs> and I can't hear those too well either. <laughs> so that was wonderful. Good job. Yeah. So if you have this truth, if you possess the truth because the Holy Spirit has done a work in you, we cannot, according to 2 John verses 10 and 11, be party to those who are promoting false doctrine. <laughs> Again, as I spent a little time on last week, I'm not talking about tertiary doctrine, that is doctrine of third importance. I'm not necessarily talking about secondary doctrine. I'm talking about false teachers who promote false doctrines in the primary category. These are doctrines that if you get them wrong, you miss heaven. If you want to believe 
that the Lord's going to return at a different time than I believe, that's fine. But if you're going to tell me that Jesus isn't God in the flesh on this planet, that's where we part ways. Not that I'm going to hate you. It's I'm going to pray for you and minister to you and hope the Holy Spirit saves you. All right, we're to treat them as an unbeliever, which doesn't mean you disregard them and shun them. It means you love them to Christ. But we do not support their ministries. We have a, having the truth results in a fidelity to the truth. The Apostle John helpfully identifies some false teaching for his readers. I want you to look at verse 7 and 9 again. I just read it. But let me point something out here. Verse 7 he says, false teachers, many he calls them deceivers, are those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He, he really wasn't a human. He, he was angelic. He, he had a spiritual body and it looked real. That was a common false teaching in the first century. And that's just exemplary. In other words, an example of what things that might keep you out of heaven. He, he speaks of others or addresses others in verse 9. Whoever goes on ahead, and that is runs ahead of what Christ has taught, um, that means being creative with the teachings of Christ, coming with something new to draw a crowd, all right, runs ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. So <laughs> they aren't in Christ. And we cannot support their ministry through buying their books, sending money to their organizations. That would fall into the category of what John is forbidding. And the teaching Christ is the issue. He taught that he was God in the flesh. Verse 7. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus taught that we must follow in his footsteps. Luke 14. And other places in the Gospels. He taught that we are to forgive one another, to know and pursue God. Review the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We know what Jesus taught. John is saying that we must abide in anything that Jesus taught and nothing more. Don't move beyond that. So if someone is altering, adding to, denying, or misrepresenting the teaching of Jesus, they are not to be trusted, supported, encouraged, or welcomed. You cannot support their ministries. The word greets in verse 11, do you see that? Another form of it's in verse 10. Don't give him any greeting, for whoever greets takes part in his wicked deeds. Communicate solidarity. That's the idea behind the word. Solidarity with. So John is saying that we can't show support or solidarity with anything false, if in fact we're filled with the truth. So the letters of, of Jude, that we'll get to in a bit, and 3 John, uh, we'll do those in a couple of weeks, um, address this same thing. Listen, for example, to Jude, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ don't have anything to do with them. Jude John, Jesus, I'll say this. As those who have the truth, we cannot be party to and support them. So friends, if you've embraced the truth of Jesus Christ, you will sacrificially be loving your neighbor. 
and you were holding to the fidelity of the truth. This is what first, this is what the second letter of John is, is about, the truth. We have access to the truth. Have you embraced it? Your intellectual knowledge of it is the first step, but do you have a full knowledge of it? Are you applying the truth? Are you actually loving the people in the church? Are you actually sharing the gospel with those outside the church? This is the evidence. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful again for your revelation to us. In this case, from the pen of the Apostle John, your beloved disciple. Thank you for his sensitivity to your spirit, his commitment to the truth, his love for the church. I pray, Father, that we would hold the um, same priorities, that we would love the truth, that we would love the source of truth, who is God himself, that we would fulfill the commands to share this love with one another. Oh, Father, uh, protect our church from um, being individualistic, from living their own lives outside of the church and then pretending to know you by coming here on Sunday morning. Father, help us to be a loving people, committed to the truth, defending the truth, holding up the truth. We pray this in the name of our Savior, who called himself the truth. Amen.